What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Mastering Miles podcast powered by Bioendurance PT and Performance. My name is Matt Ferlindis, and I am a Milwaukee area physical therapist that specializes in treating runners and running injuries. Today is part three of the Mastering the Marathon series um, with Coach Jack Hackett, where we talk about all of the things that fill in the gaps and enhance our preparation for the marathon and enhance our overall performance for the marathon. These things include base training, the importance of strength training and plyometrics, proper recovery, including both sleep and nutrition, as well as a good talk about super shoes, preparing for the proper mentality for race day and what to look out for specifically on race day itself. So I wanted to send a huge shout out and thank you to Coach Jack for being a huge part of this podcast in the infancy of it, Um, especially with this huge three-part series. He's been a wonderful guest and has provided a lot of knowledge and education um, out there. So I really appreciate that. If you are enjoying these episodes, I would appreciate you liking and subscribing on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I would really appreciate that. But without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Coach Jack Hackett. Welcome back, everyone, to the Mastering Miles podcast. Jack, we made it to part three of the Mastering the Marathon series. Yeah, thanks for bringing me back again. That's uh, always a good sign. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's been a good success, and uh, it feels good that we're kind of at part three and fit, wrapping off this series in a, in a very, very good way. But um, I wanted to ask you one thing before we get into it is in Milwaukee, you guys just organized the Run the Night event back on November 30th. So I just wanted to ask kind of how it went and uh, what you thought of it. Yeah, it was an awesome kind of fun event. We did uh, did this partnered up with On Running and then Lakefront Brewery. Uh, you basically started and finished at Lakefront Brewery, but we had over 120 people that came and basically we gave everyone a, a clue sheet, you know, of a few landmarks in Milwaukee and you got to pick the route, do whatever you kind of wanted to do. And yeah, we had people running all across the city. It was so cool to see, you know, little specks of, of, you know, light running around the city. And uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome to have it at Lakefront Brewery. It was, it was a ton of fun. The best part to me was uh, having all these different running groups from Milwaukee all kind of united for for one one event. Uh, so that was a blast. That's awesome. It was it was cool to see like the city of Milwaukee and all the runners of Milwaukee all all uniting and converging um, for that event. So that was really cool to see. Yeah, it was that was awesome. Huge thanks to to Allie from On Running, and then uh, we had Morton out there too, providing some fuel. Uh, performance running outfitters helped uh, a little bit then too. And actually, John Liddell was one of the previous podcast guests. Uh, he was a volunteer and helped uh, man one of the the stops as well. So that was it was a blast. Yeah, awesome. I saw some like really cool photography and pictures from the event too. Yeah, it was a local photographer, Patrick Chavez, that that took all those pictures. They were, they were great. You can go on on our Instagram uh, and see some of them. But uh, yeah, no, it was a, it was a blast. Awesome. 
Cool stuff. Um, so today we're getting into part three of the Mastering the Marathon series, and we were discussing before we went on, we're going to kind of call this filling in the gaps because we've talked about some of the big stuff, the big limiters, um, as well as like training principles and things like that. But this is more set up to talk about more of the other things that help to fill in the gaps uh, between all of those big things. So we'll get into a number of different topics. Um, one thing I wanted to bring in from the last podcast we did was just a small talk on base training as one of these things to like fill in the gaps. And base training, we think of that period of training before we actually start a marathon build. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Jack, like, what is the importance of that base training period? And why is it so important that we include that before we like really jump into the full marathon training plan? Yeah, I mean, that that base training is the foundation that you end up building the house on. Uh, you know, there's a reason Chicago has a lot more skyscrapers than Milwaukee. It's got a lot better kind of base that it can can build off of. Milwaukee's on a marsh. This is not the question that you're asking, but uh, <laughs> at base training, you you build up the capacity to kind of handle training for a marathon. And, you know, it, it, I think a lot of people have the idea of base training just being just easy running and just collecting kind of some mileage. Uh, but I, at least when I work with an athlete, it looks a lot more like, you know, quote unquote, real training uh, as well. Just the distribution of that effort is a lot more skewed towards easy running. You'll still do some strides, some, you know, short kind of reps. Uh, a lot of the strength training that we'll end up kind of talking about too. Uh, that's all still present in that base training uh, because you're trying to become a better athlete. So it's, it's just setting you up to handle, you know, the, the quote unquote real training of a marathon. How long should that period realistically be? That's a great question. Uh, and, and as the answer to any great question is it depends, uh, basically you need to be strong enough to handle that, that running. So if you're a first time marathoner, like you're a first time runner really, and you want to go to a marathon, having a bigger base is going to be, it's only going to be helpful. Uh, so yeah, I wish, I wish I could give you a better answer, uh, or like a specific, you need four weeks because that's the rule, but there isn't really a rule. Uh, yeah. So I, the more weeks, the better in general, because mm -hmm. we, we talked about that, you know, 12 to 20 week buildup, uh, you know, with the base training phase in there, that, that always helps. Mm -hmm. If like somebody is running a marathon for the first time, would you recommend that base training period to be a little bit longer, um, to better get ready versus someone who might be more experienced and might not need quite as much time to get ready for that? Yeah. I'd say in general, you would, want to have a longer base period for that person that's doing it for the first time. Uh, but you could also just have a longer marathon build for that person potentially too, where you kind of more slowly build up their mileage and their long runs. Yeah, uh, You know, a lot of times we, and this is also in training, like we talk about those, the zones, like we try to categorize things very neatly, but the boundaries are actually pretty blurry, uh, especially if we're doing it right. You know, uh, for a first time marathoner, it might be 20 weeks of programming, but what was base training and what was, you know, the, the real marathon build, uh, it's kind of a blurred line going from base into specific training. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. That makes total sense. And just like you said, we're building that foundation and, 
Speaking of foundation, I will try to stay off of my soapbox too much on this next topic, but I can't help it as a physical therapist. Um, we are going to get into strength training and I wanted to throw it to you first, Jack. So like what's been your experience of the importance of strength training for yourself as well as your athletes as they are prepping for the marathon? Yeah, I think, it, you know, I'm on your side on this one, uh, on your, I'll be on your soapbox too, but strength training is one of the most important things that we can do as a runner. Uh, I've seen decreased injury risk 30 to 50% for strength training twice a week. Uh, there's very few things that we can do that will lower our risk of injury more. And the best way to improve as a runner is to keep running uh, and to stay healthy. So strength training kind of helps from that end, but it also is just a simple physics equation. If you can push the ground harder, you will run faster. Uh, that strength training also improves your ability to tolerate load. It improves, you know, it improves your running economy. It like it is the one thing that most runners and most running plans kind of skips over, but I can't help but think of it as foundational to true performance. I think we are starting to realize it more and runners are starting to realize it more how important it is, which is a great thing. Um, but one thing I like to tell patients all the time is it's never a bad thing to be strong. I have yet to have a patient come in or client come in. And if I'm ever wrong down the road, I will come back on the podcast and say so. But I've never had anyone come in and find that they are too strong. And that's the reason that they're injured. Never has happened in my life. And I don't envision it happening. So it's never a bad thing to be strong, to accept all of the forces of running and be able to really build that solid foundation of all the muscles so that we can support all the loading and the mileage associated with running overall. And I know a lot of people are always worried about bulking up, like I'll lose my running figure. Uh, without getting too into the weeds, there's something called the mTOR pathway, which is part of what generates hypertrophy. Running an aerobic exercise blunts that response. So if you're running enough and lifting, like you will not turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like you will not turn into the Hulk. Like it just isn't possible. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's always a big worry for people. But like you said, I, I've never had anyone go, oh, darn, I got stronger. Like <laughs> that sucks. I'm slower <laughs> now. Uh, no, and that, that good, that, you know, good strength is going to allow you to run faster. I mean, the biggest issue for a lot of runners is that they're so weak that they start to fall apart, especially as a marathon goes on. Uh, so, you know, good strength training is going to help you keep your posture and keep your running form late into the race. Uh, you know, think about how much time you gain if you don't fall apart until mile 22 instead of mile 20. You know, that two miles of falling apart is, you know, already a bunch, this 10 minutes of running that you just saved by being stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm a huge fan of strength training for a runner. It's mm -hmm. so important. And the research supports time and time again, like there's so many studies that say we have improved running economy. So we're just more efficient. We have better foundation, even time trial performance improves with strength training. Um, and the really good thing is that there's absolutely no effect that studies have shown on any aerobic um, markers, especially VO2. So when we strength train, we're not necessarily taking a huge dip into our VO2 um, at all. So it doesn't have any effect on our aerobic capacity um, whatsoever, which is a good thing and why runners should 
um, strength train for all the improvements as well as the decrease in injury risk. So someone who necessarily hasn't strength trained before, how do you usually coach them to start that process? And what do you usually look at in terms of frequency, all that kind of stuff? So, yeah, I think the biggest thing, especially somebody that's never really lifted before, is just to do some of those in more general and foundational type movements. So things like a squat. Uh, you know, one of my favorite exercises, especially for a runner is a goblet squat. So you're, you're holding a dumbbell out in front of you, uh, that adds a little bit of an element of kind of core stability and core control. Uh, while still, you know, for a lot of people that are just starting, that could be a 25 pound weight. So it's not anything too crazy. Uh, so yeah, like squats, deadlifts, uh, you know, hip hinges, RDLs, those kind of things, uh, are where I tend to start. And then two, you're going to add in, well, I guess maybe not add in, but you start on two legs and you start, you know, in a safe kind of positioning. And as you gain strength, you can move into like split stance uh, movements or offset lifts. Like, so you're, you only have a dumbbell in one hand and it's on one shoulder, but by adding that, you know, weight distribution uh, to one side or to the other, it adds another element of that kind of postural control, right? That, that core strength. Mm-hmm. Um, I know core is a thing. A lot of people think of as just ab crunches, but uh, our core is a lot more than just that. It's part of how we kind of keep our position. Uh, mm-hmm. So especially for running, the stronger your core, the more power output you, you're going to have mm-hmm. uh, and the better position you can keep yourself in. And then two, you kind of progress weight as well. Uh, those are the main kind of ways that will progress that lifting as it goes on. I'm glad you mentioned that about core. Cause like you said, a lot of people just think of sit-ups crunches, but in reality, like the function of your core is to provide stability and those muscles aren't prime movers. And when we're doing sit-ups or crunches, we're using them as prime movers. When really what we want to do is we want to place them in situations where they have to hold and they have to stabilize our pelvis, our hips, our spine, while we're doing other movements. Um, Even things um, like doing a plank and raising a leg um, produces more like rotational stability. And one thing that I found to be really, really helpful is you made a mention to this too, but like carries. So like holding onto a heavy weight on one side and carrying it back and forth. And it's amazing how much of a core workout that that really is to stabilize yourself and keep yourself up nice and straight because that weight is going to want to either tip you towards it or you're going to compensate by tipping away from it and getting that good postural control to stay nice and up and down truly applies to running because when we're only on one leg, our body's going to want to compensate by going the other way. And so things like that and getting on a single leg and getting comfortable is so important for that overall stabilization. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of eventually progressing to that kind of single leg type movement. Uh, You know, a lot of lifting, at least at the start, is geared more or less like straight up and down. Uh, But that's another way that I like to kind of tweak lifts is to then have some more planar movement to like have you moving forward, like a step up or a lunge, uh, as opposed to like a traditional squat. and then, like you said, too, like that offset kind of nature of things. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of of doing anything like that, or like those farmer, farmer carries uh, and marches 
like you said, just creating situations where you have to stabilize your core and balance yourself. It, it's one of the most, you know, transferable skills that you're going to, going to find in a weight room. Mm-hmm. How often do you have your runner strength train depending on the time of the season? So typically, uh, it's two times a week. I'll have some that will will do three times a week, but what I typically do is have two more you know, traditional strength days, and then that third day for a lot of athletes, it's what I would call you know more functional or more mobility based. Uh, so it's not as heavy of a weight, but it's kind of learning that end range of motion control or you know some different movements to help open open the hips up or things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but most of the research that I've seen shows two days a week is the right kind of amount of, of stimulus. Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah. that seem fair to you or is that? Yeah. You yeah. You? That, that totally seems fair to me. Um, for myself, if, if a runner's coming in injured, I'm usually going to want them to do much more from more from a maintenance perspective, especially as you get closer to races. I like the two to three times a week. Um, there may be some cases like in the case of like, if someone's dealing or has had a history of like, maybe let's say tendinopathy, type of issues, especially at the Achilles patella, usually those respond to more frequency. But again, it's individual basis. But if we're talking just more generalities, that two to three times a week um, is works out pretty well for most runners that I found. And and I should say too, I tend to do two layers of strength training. So like when, when we're talking about this, like I'm talking about that main lifting day, but I, for most athletes will program, what I call a pre-activation, or you could call it a daily strength routine. You know, it's about five to 10 minutes with a lot of band work. Uh, and it's a lot more, it's, it's a warm up, but it's strength training. It's just a lower dose, but then the higher frequency. And I, I have found great success having that you know, kind of pre-activation, which is more or less every day. Uh, you know, like I said, lower dose, but higher frequency. And then having those two days a week of heavy weights, that's that true, you know, progressive overload, uh, which is that kind of higher dose, but lower frequency and having those two kind of meld together, uh, really helps diminish kind of the injury risk. I've, I've mm-hmm. seen studies and most of them are around soccer, which isn't the same as running obviously, but uh, that pre-activation has, uh, reduced injury risks like 30 to 50%. Again, uh, so there's a reason to do it is that it can help you know, basically protect you and helps warm you up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it can also help, you know, for a lot of runners, they're not strong enough through their hips. They're not strong enough through their, their kind of, you know, core and doing some of those things can help strengthen that, but it also attunes your body to the forces that are about to be coming. Mm -hmm. The nice thing is too, a lot of runners will experience like pretty quick progress with it because when we initially start strengthening, we get a lot of neural adaptation, which means our nerves are just more efficient and they're better capable. They're more capable of producing more force. So you'll see those improvements pretty quickly overall. But then, you know, I usually like to start runners and people that aren't used to strength training, you know, that very traditional two to three sets of 10 repetitions. Um, but once individuals get really adapted to that, it's kind of nice because then you can start playing with like the reps and the sets and you can go, as you said, you know, maybe a little bit heavier, but less repetitions. And that works more on like pure strength focus type of thing. And so it's a nice thing because you can 
periodize it throughout the year, similar to you do like you do with your actual aerobic run training um, to help at different purposes and at different points. So really the strength training should be occurring all throughout the year. Um, and you can play around with the goals of that throughout the years you go through. Yeah. And, and this might be getting a little bit too into the weeds, but I'm a huge fan of doing a few of the triphasic kind of progressions uh, where you're basically, you think of a squat, there's the three phases, the, you know, kind of down part, which is the eccentric loading. There's the where you're at the bottom, which is that isometric kind of part. And then there's the concentric aspect of the movement where you're going back up. Uh, so you kind of, you know, isolate those three pieces to it. Uh, so I have a lot of runners end up doing like a, that triphasic kind of progression with a split squat, uh, like a rear foot elevated split squat. Cause it, you know, really kind of hammers that, that home. And like you said, you periodize that along with training so that, those you know, last couple of weeks before the the race, you're doing that concentric, you know, more speed based uh, lift, which is emulating a little bit more power or like more more like running. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, I don't want to get too into the weeds. Yeah, <laughs> into I mean. But I think the overall generalization of this is if this is something that you as a runner are not doing yet, it is the very low hanging fruit, a very easy thing to get into. And it makes huge improvements in both running performance as well as injury risk. And so if you find yourself as a runner and you haven't really started that strength training, highly recommend doing so. And if you need guidance, you know, contact individuals like Jack, contact individuals like me. And I know um, both of us would be more than happy to help lead you through that process and help you get a good understanding of what the goal is and how to better program that into your running um, throughout your whole training year. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I've been very fortunate with the couple of hundred athletes that I've worked with that I've had very, very few that have bombed out because of, of injury or, or anything like that. Uh, I mean, really just about none. Uh, I've had a, a ski accident, a car accident, and somebody dropped a weight on their foot. Uh, and then somebody sprained an ankle now just recently, but you know, like all freak things, not overuse injuries, which I'm, I'm really proud of. And I, I attribute that a lot to the strength training that's at the core of, of what I try to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the definition of overuse training is we're using those muscles, tendons, ligaments, bones over and over and over again, and they don't, they aren't strong enough or they don't get a great chance to recover. And that's how those injuries happen. But um, like we're talking about, if you train them, if you strengthen them, if you make them more resilient, they are going to be more resilient to the demands of running and injury and all of that good stuff. So that plays a huge role into it. Yeah, I think that's probably a good transition into the next thing that we should talk about. <laughs> which are plyometrics or jumping. And if I were to say to you, Jack, that running is not a plyometric or jumping sport, what would you say to that? Uh, I would question what you're doing here, hosting a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously running is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the ultimate plyometric exercise, uh, maybe not ultimate, you know, probably the long jump is the ultimate plyometric <laughs> exercise, but uh running is just a series of plyometric movements. It's about the elasticity of the, especially the Achilles tendon. Uh, it's one of the best predictors for 10 K performance is a standing long jump. Oh, Isn't I didn't that know that. Fun? That's pretty cool. Yeah. They, they had a group of, of, you know, semi elite or like, I think it was college age 
you know, elite runners. And, and the best predictor for the 10 K time was like a standing long jump. Nice. It was one of the best. I shouldn't say it was the best, like, sure. but it was high up there, which is a very, you know, funny thing to think about. Uh, but that plyometric ability directly translates to your ability as a runner. Mm-hmm. Do you have the um, citation or do you have that article on hand? I can try and dig it up. I've looked for this study before. Like I know I read it and it wasn't a dream. Uh, so I need to <laughs> dig it up and find it again. So I'll, I'll yeah, if we can, that. we can find that. We'll include that on there um, for sure. But um, there's actually was a new research study out this year in 2023 that was looking specifically at like plyometrics and running economy. Um, and it was a very, very simple plyometric program. Essentially, they had the study participants just do a standing um, vertical jump for height over and over again for like a specific period. So I think the first week of the protocol was like 10 seconds of on activation jumping 50 seconds of rest and doing that like five times and then they progressed that protocol and they found really significant improvements in just overall running economy albeit that improvement was more associated to faster running speeds so like the race paces type thing but it makes sense because when we're going faster we're using more of that elastic energy we're using more of those quick twitch muscle fibers to propel us forward through there. And so it's it's um, so important and the evidence and the research is starting to significantly point to plyometrics to improve our running economy, foundation, and and all of that to improve our overall performance. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that, that using plyometrics. I, I tend to not as often call them out to runners as plyometrics as maybe I should. Uh, but I'll kind of hide them in there in, in that pre-activation or, or in like a section, I, I tend to call it like a running form drill. You know, I'll have mm-hmm. them do like the A skip and B skip and things that feel like they're good for your running form, but are actually plyometric in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> What I what what I found too is of course there's that like power concentric component where we're like trying to jump as high as we can or as far as we can. But I've almost found really good use for them in a clinical setting for like being able to accept the forces. So I'll often cue people to land and stick the landing, you know, be able to like hop on one foot forward, stick that landing and stabilize it to better practice um, attenuating or accepting all of the forces with running. Um, and I think that's so important because we're teaching those muscles how to stabilize ourselves, how to stabilize our hips, core, spine to deal with the impact of running. So I think that's a very important aspect of it too. Yeah. I've seen a lot of research kind of around like the depth, depth jumps, uh, where you're kind of like talking about sticking the landing and like learning how to accept that force. Uh, I know you guys just did a, a great podcast with the, the guys from expedition performance around return to run. And one of those main criteria that you guys talk about is the ability to handle that kind of progression of plyometrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, yeah, I thought that was, that was some great information. So I appreciate uh, you guys sharing all that. Yeah, of course. Um, one other like good nugget of knowledge that I found, um, in researching this week for this podcast is actually like, we think of plyometrics as like vertical and like trying to jump as high as you can, 
But there's actually some good style research that like doing more horizontal. So like trying to jump as far as you can or to the side as far as you can can be just as impactful and even more impactful than like straight up vertical plyometrics too. So that's really cool. So we shouldn't just be trying to jump as high as we can, but we should also be trying to jump as far as we can, which goes into that piece of evidence you brought up with the long jump and the 10K performance. Yeah, like I said, I think that's a great way to kind of progress it. Like you want to start by learning how to accept those forces, uh, which is where like the more vertical kind of jumps go. And then you can kind of move on to doing the horizontal type of jumping. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I've heard this said this way. I, I can't remember now who to to give credit to for this, but like we could essentially handle jumping up and down all day. Uh, I mean, obviously, like that would lead to some overuse, but that force isn't really that grating on our bodies. It's the sheer force, like the horizontal movement, the eccentric loading from running, that that's what causes us to break down. Uh, so we got to be careful kind of progressing towards that and learning how to, to handle those things. Is that, mm -hmm. is that true? Do you agree with that statement? I would totally agree with that. And that applies specifically to running because we're not trying to stride as high up as possible. We're trying to stride as far forward as possible and to be as fast going more in the horizontal direction. So we need to be able to accept those forces of it because like you said, those sheer forces um, are very impactful and can be a major risk for a lot of different injuries. Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of that horizontal stuff, just making sure that you're prepared for it mm -hmm. <laughs> as with... Yeah. So how do people then, or how have you worked to progress people into plyometrics? Because there is a risk. Like if you haven't done any plyometrics before, we don't want you trying to jump a ton and trying to jump as high as you can consistently, because that can sometimes lead to some injuries. So we need to make sure we go into it slowly. So how have you handled that process overall? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's just start small, like with, with anything else. Uh, you, you had a great post and, and, you know, you wrote a, guest blog on, on our blog about plyometrics. And we kind of talked about this a little bit, but it, you can start with something as simple as, you know, 20, like, you know, double leg pogos where you're just jumping up and down uh, and you just kind of layer up those amount of touches where you're getting to about a hundred to 120, you know, jumps or like touches uh, per session, basically in general, because plyometrics tend to be a higher neural demand, we want to do them fresher and earlier on, uh, as opposed to like at the end of a big workout, like you don't want to do plyometrics at the end of your, you know, 20 mile marathon pace long run, uh, because you're just so neurally fatigued that you're not going to get as much out of it. Uh, so it's good timing wise to kind of do it maybe after the pre-activation when you're warmed up and you're, you're kind of attuned to the task that's going to be at hand. Mm-hmm. I will include that blog post in the show notes for anyone that's interested, but I highly recommend um, giving it a read um, just because you're right. We do kind of delve into how to properly progress it and how to safely progress it um, to make sure that you can progress safely and avoid um, any unnecessary injuries by trying to do the right thing and maybe doing a little bit too much of the right thing. So highly recommend reading that blog um, to get some more information on that overall. Yeah, I think that that's a, uh a great kind of place to start. Uh, if you have more specific questions, obviously reach out to, to Matt or, or to me, like there are ways to progress it, but uh, uh, yeah, start double leg 
and vertical, and then you can kind of progress, you know, to single leg and vertical and then horizontal and then, you know, from double leg to single leg. And you can start to mix those types of things up, add multi-planar movements where you can kind of, you know, hop like crisscross, almost like hopscotch style. Uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of ways to kind of progress that. Wonderful. And with that, we will head next into the topic of recovery. Um, and more specifically, we'll split this up a little bit, but um, let's talk about sleep first because sleep is so essential, so important. And when we're running, we're literally breaking down our tissues and the gains of training actually happen with recovery. Um, and most notably, probably most off when we are sleeping. So why is it so important that we get that sufficient sleep and how much sleep should we be aiming for? Yeah. So one of my favorite studies, it was the, it was an NCAA wide study, but the best predictor for NCAA athletes in injury was sleeping less than, I think it was eight hours a night. Uh, I might've been seven, but it was in that seven or eight hours a night. I should have, should have it pulled up, but I have uh, um, that study sleeping less than eight or sorry, sleeping at least eight hours lowers odds of injury risk by 61%. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, eight hours is kind of the gold standard. Like a lot of what we've talked about, there are some individual layers to this. You know, there's some research that shows there's what, I think it's something like 1% of the population, you know, gets by on four hours of sleep or something like that. Uh, everyone thinks they're that 1% that <laughs> is the exception to the rule, but most of us need minimum seven, eight hours of sleep. That's the easiest way to get better as a runner, uh, is to stay healthy. And the easiest way to stay healthy is to just sleep. Uh, you know, then there's a lot of things we could probably do a whole podcast on sleep, uh, you know, hygiene, but basically trying to keep a routine around bedtime, uh, you know, no screens or no phones, uh, as close to bedtime as possible kind of help as well. Uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm a fan. I read every night before bed and that, that helps me fall asleep. Uh, yeah. So everyone's going to be a little bit different, but finding that kind of routine to help, help sleep. That's the best thing you can do. Like Matt said, that's when the actual physiologic repair is happening, uh, is in that, that kind of repair and sleep state. Um, there are some really good resources on sleep if people need to delve into it further, but, um, the Huberman lab podcast, um, Dr. Huberman does many different podcasts and like informational stuff on like good sleep habits and good sleep routines. Um, and he has a lot of like important things to say about it. Even stuff like, like you said, Jack, setting up a good routine at night, staying away from screens, staying away from unnecessary light and also things of like getting morning sunlight and adjusting your circadian rhythm that way can also lead to improved sleep. But another really good book that I read this one maybe like five years ago, but I always try to go back and read it once every year. Um, it's by D Dr. Matthew Walker, who's one of the leading researchers on sleep and it's called Why We Sleep. And he goes into the weeds of why it's so important, physiological benefits, all of these different risks for different diseases and, and things of that nature. And he goes through a lot of like good sleep hygiene and sleep habit tips as well. So I highly recommend that as a read if you're interested in learning more about it overall too. Yeah, I, I've read that before. It was a great book and it really wasn't that long or like that hard to digest. Even though he gets into the weeds with it, he does it in a way that you know, is approachable and understandable. So yeah, like mm -hmm. I said, I, I would recommend that book as well. If you want to understand more about sleep, if you don't just sleep more, 
That's the mm-hmm. easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the other important thing about sleep um, is what some of the research is showing too, is sometimes there's like, um, there was an article by Johnston et al. And it was like studying specifically sleep for runners. And they found that, of course, individuals for them, the cutoff was seven hours. But individuals that slept less than seven hours were at an increased risk for injury. But they're also mentioned like there was like a two week lag. So let's say if you have like a really busy, stressful week and you're not getting sufficient sleep, um, it's important to know that sometimes the effects of that can linger like even up to two weeks um, as well. So that's a really important thing to make sure to note and to possibly adjust training. Like if you get really, really poor sleep, it might be important to adjust your training for the next couple of weeks um, just to make sure that you're avoiding any crazy injury risk or anything like that at all. Yeah, that's interesting. I know there's been a lot of, you know, other research and discussion around like the sleep the night before the race isn't as important as two nights before. Uh, But that's interesting to hear the kind of two week, uh, you know, hangover time Mm -hmm. from that. And it kind of makes sense. So it's like, you know, the odds of like getting an injury like the day after a rough night of sleep are probably fairly low and I don't have any research to support this, but it makes sense that it's just going to give you some physiological debt per se. And maybe that can hit you or haunt you by trying to improve your training stress and, and training load and somewhere along the line, something might break down in that, in that whole two week lag. So it kind of makes sense from that perspective, but it it just goes back to how important sleep is um, and how, that can be, I think, a quote by Dr. Matthew Walker, and I don't know if I have the exact quote, but he talks about how sleep is one of like the most important performance enhancing drugs that no one is utilizing. And that just shows how effective it is to increase performance and to stay healthy and all of those things like sleep is number one. It's funny. I mean, you say that no one is using, but there are plenty of uh, a lot of the pros that I know will take naps and they mm-hmm. sleep you know, a long time at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're utilizing sleep quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember, you know, around Elliot Kipchoge, there was a whole flurry of stories that came out like, oh, he only sleeps six hours a night. Uh, but they, in none of those stories, as I see it mentioned, that he takes two other naps a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's still sleeping eight, nine, 10 hours a day. Yeah. Uh, he is, he was just breaking it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he might be, one of those one percent people that doesn't eat as much, but yeah. because he's training so much, he you know does need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't really speak too much to that, but you know a lot of pros and like I know for myself in college when I was training at a you know I'll say a higher level, uh, not certainly certainly not a high level. Uh, like I would take naps most days a week. Uh, I thought that was one of the best things that I could be doing, and. Uh, that was probably why I only was mildly injured the whole time because I wasn't strength training anywhere near enough uh, back then. Mm-hmm. It's so important. And so use those resources and, um, you know, really try to improve that sleep as, as much as possible because it really is a huge, it, it, like I said before about strength training, it's another low hanging fruit that we can all work on and improve. Um, some nights are going to be better than others, but as long as we're like trying to make that a habit, we're going to see some benefits of it. No doubt about it. Yeah, I think uh, like you said, the habit is like if you have one bad day, don't don't just throw the whole thing out. Like it's okay. It's the totality of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So don't worry about one bad night. Mm-hmm. Like you go out with your friends one night, like that's okay. Just get mm-hmm. back on the horse and mm-hmm. keep sleeping. 
consistency. There's going to be some outliers in there, but the most important thing is consistency. Yeah, there's a, a great study. This is a whole nother tangent real quick. Uh, I feel feel guilty. This is just how I think. But there's a, a look at uh, pro runners and they rated how they felt on their workouts. And the vast majority of them were okay to bad. Like you don't have to be great, like phenomenal. It's just if you feel okay and get the work done, like that's how you actually improve. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's okay to, you know, you mostly want to stack okay. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. if you can just do okay and show up every day with that that's how you get to great yeah it's not by being great every single day mm -hmm. it's by just being good enough in in my interview with uh john he mentioned hitting doubles not going for the home run but just hitting doubles and that's where you're going to score a lot of runs that's where you're going to get a lot of gains exactly mm-hmm um, the next topic is more on nutrition. And as we mentioned before, Jack and I are not registered dietitians or anything like that. And we'll be doing a more intense, uh, podcast on this in, in the new year as well. But I think it's just important to touch on because nutrition is a big part about recovery and training and everything like that. And it's just so important to make sure with all the calories that we are expending and all the energy that we are using, um, it's so important that we replenish ourselves and fuel ourselves, um, not only like during the run, but also just generally throughout the entire day overall too. Yeah. That's like you said, Matt, we're, you know, breaking down a lot of our tissue with training. We are running a huge calorie deficit. Like we, we've talked a lot about carbs and the importance of those, but also protein is such an important piece for, for runners. Uh, something like 60 to 70% of female distance runners are iron deficient. So making sure that we're getting iron rich foods, uh, is an easy low hanging fruit nutritionally. Uh, and then to like having that calorie deficit puts us at risk because then that tissue is not completely healed. And the next time we go out, we pound on that again. And, and that cycle, you know, leads to injury. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, running is a, a phenomenal, it's one of the best weight loss kind of things that you can do, but weight loss in marathon training are just not very compatible. Mm -hmm. uh, you might very well lose some weight training for your, for a marathon, but if you go into it with the goal of losing weight, you're really opening yourself up to, to risk of injury. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, it, you know, I think that's where talking to a nutritionist or a dietitian if you have weight loss goals, working with one of them is one of the best things that you can do because it'll at least set you up to know what limits and things that you're kind of hitting. But in general, marathon training is you need to be getting enough calories mm -hmm. to keep your body fueled. If you're doing it right, it's hard and will take a lot out of you. So mm -hmm. best thing you can do, get that, get those carbs and proteins and, and healthy fats then too. Mm -hmm. Um, there's some research out there that even for like runners that are running on more of a caloric deficit, our bones can actually enter into resorption, which means we're not putting nutrients into our bones. We're actually taking away nutrients from our bones, which can make them weaker and put us at stress for bone stress injuries. And those are the running injury that you really, really want to stay away from at all costs. And it's more than just, um, calories in calories out. There's just this concept of energy availability is yeah, we need that energy to run, but our body also needs a lot of energy 
to run ourselves and, you know, physiologically run um, hormones, endocrine system, heart, lungs, brain, like all of that takes energy. And so it's important that we have that good energy availability. Um, and like I said, I'm going to be getting a dietitian on the podcast to delve more into these topics, but it's just the concept generally of like, we need to be eating, we need to be fueling ourselves each and every day um, to make sure that we can tolerate running and reduce our injury risk with that. Yeah, I, I think as far as you and I are concerned, like the qualifications that we can we can say is eat good whole foods as much as you can, eat enough, and then we'll let you know we'll let somebody much smarter yeah. and accredited than us uh, yeah. give the specifics. <laughs> One thing we can talk about though, Jack, is super shoes. This is a hot button topic these days. So um, we're just going to kind of open it and like, what's your, what's your um, opinion of super shoes? Um, and yeah, let's just, let's just start it rolling there. So yeah, I think I'll define super shoes to start is typically a super critical foam. Uh, what super critical means is it's just been heated to a crazy degree and it creates a more responsive foam. Uh, so that's typically something that's, that's called a PIBA foam, uh, polyether block amide, but it's a whole different Kind of thing. So that type of supercritical responsive foam paired with typically a curved carbon fiber plate. Uh, that carbon fiber plate and the foam together are the secret sauce to a super shoe. There's been a whole bunch of studies with just the foam and just the plate in a regular kind of shoe. Uh, and you can get minor little improvements with one or the other, but somehow when they're together, it's this magic kind of thing that you know, everyone knows the Vaporfly 4%. When that came out, that was because it had a 4% improvement in running economy, uh, which doesn't mean that you're 4% faster. Uh, that actually translates to about 1.8 to 2% kind of improvement in your marathon time. Uh, so these super shoes are hugely beneficial and they've only gotten better uh, for the most part. There's a hugely individual level of response to them as well. Uh, I know there's a recent Adidas study where they looked at their pro athletes and a bunch of different prototypes. They had some people that had upwards of 14% improvement in running economy. I would be willing to bet that, uh, you know, Asefa was probably one of those hyper responders based on the fact that she just smashed the women's world record. Uh, but they had some people that actually negatively responded. The people that were less efficient in a super shoe. Uh, so I think, it's not a given that it's going to make you faster just by buying any one of them. Uh, you should, if at all possible, try them on. Uh, try multiple if you can. You know, go to a running store and see see if they have any options for you to try, because you want to feel comfortable in it and like it's propelling you kind of forward. Uh, yeah, I think that's at least a decent kind of start to the conversation. Yeah, no, 100%. And I'm glad you brought up the individuality of it because, or the individualized um, nature of it, because there is some solid research out there that, you know, some people, like you said, really benefit from it, but some people negate it. And in some, like some, some specific studies where they were comparing like a super shoe to like a racing flat, um, which we've, which a lot of pros have used in the past to cut down on weight is some people preferred the flat and some people did better in the flat versus the super shoes. So it's important to try those things and not necessarily think it's going to automatically make you faster. Um, but one thing that I found with shoes over and over and over again, it's what feels comfortable for you. 
So if you don't feel like that is super comfortable, it's probably not necessarily going to make you faster. And if you feel more comfortable in like racing flat or like your regular shoe or whatnot, that might be the better option overall. Yeah. I mean, I'd say the chances are that one of the super shoes will probably feel comfortable and will benefit you for most people. Uh, so like, you know, especially if we're talking about mastering the marathon, like trying to run your fastest time, most likely you're going to want or need a super shoe to achieve that. Mm -hmm. Uh, especially for, you know, 200, uh, $300. It's one of the fastest ways to cut down on a marathon time. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the average, you know, runner that's worth about six to 15 minutes, uh, coming off of your marathon time, which is kind of wild to think that you can spend some money and, and get that much faster. Again, like there is that individual kind of nature to it, but it, for most people, you're going to benefit from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it, it's just wild that mm-hmm. these, these things are around and uh, can improve you that much. There is some research though that they only last so long. They have a lot shorter shelf life as far as effective performance. There's a great study actually on, uh, had created some prototypes for uh for a researcher and they had EVA foam, which is the standard kind of foam and the carbon plate. And then that PIBA based foam and the carbon fiber plate. And they had people do the testing kind of when both shoes were brand new and they showed that the, you know, super critical foam, the PIBA foam had, uh, I think it was like a 2.8% improvement in running time when they were fresh, but there was no difference when both shoes had, I think it was something like 250 miles on them or 250 kilometers or something like that. Uh, once, once they were both worn in, there was no excess benefit to having the, you know, super shoe, uh, with the foam and plate. It's, it's kind of a weird thing, but so that first hundred miles or so is that sweet spot effectiveness for them. So how I typically recommend people to use that super shoe is, to get that in, try it on, make sure that it feels comfortable at least walking around and maybe just jogging a little bit in the store. Uh, but then you'll use it for one or two workouts, uh, maybe one workout and then like a long run workout where you try it for a longer period of time. And then you can kind of know that it's going to work well for that race day. Uh, but yeah, you just want to at least, you know, try it at some point. You don't want race day to be the first day that you take it for a big long spin. Yeah. That's a really good point Um, because there is some like there's some solid research out there that running in a super shoe, obviously, with the differences and how it's made hardcore changes how you run and like your kinematics of it. And just to list off some examples, there's differences in muscle activation. Sometimes you're taking a longer step length, reduced cadence. Sometimes there's more um, ground contact time. Um, as well. And, and it can change the level of, let's say Achilles load or foot load and all of these different things much more at the ankle than at the knee and the hip. And so our bodies adapt really, really well to that, but it's important to make sure that we slowly progress into that and not just use it for race day. Um, because that, if you're not used to it, that can pose a threat to injuries. We just need a little bit of time to like break that in and get used to it uh, before we start using it for like those really long, really high performances overall. Yeah. And you know, each person's going to be a little bit different and your circumstances are different, but you know, in an ideal world, if you were a professional athlete, you would use those super shoes for 
plenty of the workouts and for the long runs. And then you would have a second pair that's fresh that you know is going to work at the same shoe that you've worn. And you'd have that for race day. Uh, this is not realistic for most people. Uh, mm-hmm. So you want to be able to try it out and kind of keep it still in that sweet spot of, of response. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can make sure you get as much out of it as possible, but you've tried it enough that you know that it works. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the push and pull of it. And I feel like there's been like some talk of individuals possibly getting injured in some of them. And I don't think the research is super clear yet or has looked specifically into like injury risk specifically. I know there's been some risk of like bone stress injuries at the foot, some Achilles load issues. But I think it goes back again to if you're adapting to it well and you do it in a smart way, um, you should be able to avoid those types of issues. It kind of goes back to that huge Um, minimalist or barefoot um, running phase, um, you know, a decade ago, where people were just automatically like transitioning straight into those shoes without any warm up or adaptation. And that's when the injuries happen. So I think it's it's safe to say that those types of injuries probably happen the same way with super shoes as well. So we just need a little bit of time to adapt um, before we go crazy with them. Yeah, I think that that's a perfect summation. All right. And then, um, we, you know, we often talk about how marathons and, you know, racing is a certain percent physical, but also a very large percent mental. And just having that proper mentality to run a marathon as well. So how do we prep ourselves for that race and how do we give ourselves the right mentality, the right mindset to succeed and maximize our performance during that race overall? Yeah, I think this is an area where I I want to kind of similar to nutrition state, you know, we're not mental performance coaches or psychiatrists or, or any of those kind of things. Uh, so if you really struggle with race day anxiety, you know, seeing a professional might be very beneficial. Uh, that said, there are some kind of like nutrition routine things that we can talk about that apply pretty broadly. Uh, so having that proper preparation is just going to help. Basically, you know, the simple things, visualization is one of the easiest kind of tools that you can do. Uh, so especially if you're familiar with the course, uh, or if you're not, like most races will have a, a race video, uh, like a race course video, or you can find somebody that's ran the race with a GoPro or something like that. So you can get a sense for what the race course is going to look like. Uh, and then visualize yourself there and picture what success would look like. Uh, and then two... A thing that I do with pretty much every athlete before, especially a bigger race, is something called if-then planning. Uh, so when we're racing and just in life, the most taxing things that we can do are making those decisions and trying to figure out the different math around things. So if we have a good if-then plan, it takes away some of that mental strain and that mental load. So basically, you know, if I'm out too fast at the 5k, then what? Like, you, then it just makes the decision for you. You don't have to debate and think for a while. You see different, you know, different triggers and it kind of creates the, or like you've created the decision already. Uh, and that takes a lot of that load off of you. Uh, so I think that's one of the easiest and best things that you can kind of do, you know, like, oh, if I start hitting the wall at mile 20, I take a gel start there. And then, you know, like you can kind of have a whole string of responses already 
to go. Uh, that's one of the easiest ways that you can kind of get ready for it. Uh, also, just having an idea of what the course is going to do too. Like, hey, there's a big hill from mile 20 to 22. Well, okay, I know that's coming. I'm mentally prepared for it. Uh, those are some of the, you know, just some of the easy things, you know, as we, as we talked about, low-hanging fruit that you can do. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a good point. And I wanted to give a shout out to Alex Maine, um, who's a local area Milwaukee runner. And um, I'm going to be having him on the podcast in 2024, but he just put out this on this run journal, which is like a 12 week journal for like journaling and mindset and making sure that, and it's supposed to be used for like the 12 weeks leading up to your race, which kind of coincides nicely with that marathon build, but it's supposed to be utilized to like journal thoughts, emotions, mindset, all of those different things as you lead into the race to really set yourself up well mentally and to kind of put yourself in a really good mindset. So that's um, a really cool um, thing to add into the mix if people are interested in that as well. Yeah, Alex is great. Uh, and that I, I've got on this run, the journal, uh, and I've used it as well and, and have, have loved it. Uh, it's great to kind of reflect on how you're feeling. Uh, and like we kind of hinted at, you know, a lot of those workouts aren't always, you know, you don't always feel good or they don't always go well. Uh, but a lot of times you still did the work. And that's something that you can kind of fall back on is like, hey, I hit those splits and I did this, even though I felt like crap, like, you know, having that mentality around uh, is only going to kind of help uh, to know like, hey, I've been here before, you know, I've done a, I've done a 10K rep, like, you know, at marathon pace, even when I was tired, I know I just hit 20 miles in the race, but there's only 10K left, like I can do this. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, you know, that mental kind of piece to it is, such an important part and it isn't just a race day thing you can build that preparedness way earlier on so in a lot of those long run workouts you can kind of put yourself in that position to visualize or to imagine what the race would feel like you can do it on terrain that's similar to the race or if you're doing a local marathon you can do that long run on the course uh, and get a sense for you know the different markers and and to start preparing your thought process throughout the race. Awesome. That sums it up super, super nicely. And now that we've done all this preparation, we've made it to race day, we're healthy, we're ready to roll. Um, what are some things that we should pay attention to, attention to specifically on race day while running um, or even the day before um, that also sets us up to maximize our performance during that race? Yeah. I mean, this could be a whole nother podcast all on its own, but uh one of the things that I, it shocks me every single time I go and watch a race is people that aren't running the tangents, uh, especially at a bigger race when it's more crowded. Like people just stay shoulder to shoulder and will run on the outside of every turn. It, like you can, when they measure the course to certify that it's 26.2 miles, they take the tangents to measure the course. Uh, so you should too. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just running extra and that's you're going to slow you down Jeez. a lot of big races they'll have a blue line uh like mm -hmm. on the course so that you know what which way the turn is coming up if you can't see it uh so that's a huge one that just kind of always boggles my mind a little bit uh so run the tangents cut the corners and yes if it's a big crowd like you might not be able to get all the way over 
but you can probably still shave a little bit of distance off on, on each of those turns as you kind of flow with the course. Uh, so that's a huge one. The, you know, we talked about that mental strain and that mental load, like almost every race has a participant guide or an athlete guide that will walk you through some of the things that you can do to help set yourself up so that you know where bag drop is, you know where you have to be for the start, you know, you know, all the kind of little details that you don't hopefully have to stress out as much. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a huge piece to it. Uh, having that nutrition plan dialed in, knowing what's on course and like where you can get it and when you can get it and augmenting your, your kind of plan around that uh, so that you know, kind of when you're going to have different, you know, access to different nutritions or to water Uh most races will have that kind of out there for you in some some degree. And the nutrition is a very important part too, because I think that's something that people should look at months leading up. Like what type of nutrition is the race giving out? Are they giving out Powerade, Gatorade? What type of choose what type of gels? If they're not giving out the things that you've trained with specifically and know that work well with you, then you're going to have to come up with a plan to, okay, I need to carry my own gels because they're not providing that for me, my specific brand um, and whatever it may be. So you need to set that plan up to make sure what's on course is what agrees with you, what works for you and if not bringing that yourself and and having that with you as well to be able to access and i'll say too it, it, it can be useful with a huge caveat here uh which I'll, I'll get into but to have like your your significant other or your friends or your parents or whoever out on course can provide you with some of that nutrition or like some of that that help the caveat is like that can technically disqualify you if you're looking for prize money or like Olympic trials qualification or, or some of these kind of variables. Uh, so you want to be careful with that, depending on your goals, like make sure that that's not going to get you in trouble. But, uh, you know, if you're just trying to run it on your own, like in a vacuum, that's a great way to kind of help supplement some of that. I know for myself, like my, my wife was able to hand me uh, some of the Morton drink mix out on course. And that was a easy way to get a lot of those carbs in without having to carry, you know, six, seven, eight gels, uh, for the whole race. Mm -hmm. So like I said, with that huge caveat, knowing that that can get you in trouble. That's yeah. a great point. That's a, that's a great point. And honestly, I think that sums up our three part series really, really nicely of, of, properly preparing for and being able to fully master that marathon. And I think this is a great description of kind of like we mentioned, all of those different things that can fill in the gaps. Of course, the training is is the big thing, but all of these things are so important to fill in those gaps, especially when we talk about, um, you know, strength training, plyometrics, sleep, nutrition, all of those things supplement that training so nicely and they are just as essential as all of the importance of the actual marathon training too. Yeah, I, I love the, you know, old stoic phrase, like how you do one thing is how you do anything. Uh, it's like if you sleep well, you will probably train well. If you strength train well, you will probably, you know, race well. Like if you do these things and do them well, you will, well, hopefully help master the marathon. Mm -hmm. The other kind of piece to mastery is is repetition. Uh, so if it's your first one, like great, but you haven't mastered it yet. You got to kind of do it again and and you know, learn what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think I would encourage people to keep 
some type of a log of your experience then too. You know, a lot of people go to the race, do it, and like you'll have the thought, oh, that really didn't work. But they never write it down and they'll make that same mistake the next time because, you know, whatever. The the book says I should do this. Well, if you did that and it didn't work for you, like don't do that again. <laughs> you know, that's what kind of mastery is, is learning from your mistakes and, and mm-hmm. building a routine that works for you. That sums it up super nicely. And Jack, I wanted to express full gratitude to you for partnering with this series. I know it's a big time commitment and takes some time. So just wanted to say, I appreciate all of your expertise and your willingness to kind of be a part of this series. I think we've been able to distill a lot of solid information out there um, to individuals. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It, like you said, it's uh, been a time commitment. So thank you uh, as well as the listener, uh, whoever you are. Uh, you, you've assured me there's more than one person listening, but uh, there I would be surprised if just my friends that are, are tuning in to humor me. Uh, but no, hopefully this is good information. Uh, I appreciate you, Matt, and having the, the avenue to kind of even share it. Uh, I think it's so important to educate people. That's the kind of cornerstone of why I do this is to kind of share the, you know, share the good word and and get people to know this, uh, this stuff. It, it only helps everyone, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Awesome. I'm sure we'll have you on the podcast again really soon, Jack. We'll have to come up with some new information and knowledge to share in the new year, but um, thanks again. And thanks for listening, everyone. And, and with that, happy and healthy training. <laughs>